Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you look at the changing face of America and the changing face of the American labor movement, you need look no further than the face of Mary Kay Henry, the president of the Service Employees Union, the fastest growing union uh, in America, almost two million members and counting. Uh, I sat down with Mary Kay uh, the other day at the IOP for a discussion about where we are in terms of wages, in terms of labor, in terms of politics. And she was honest, candid, hopeful, and a little bit scary. Mary Kay Henry, president of the SEIU, so happy to have you here at the IOP. Glad to be here, David. So looking across the table, the first thing that occurs to me is, you know, when you mention labor leaders to the average person, they think of guys with 18-inch collars and big, beefy hands, and um, that's not you. Right. That's, but we love those guys. Yes. I'm They're not demeaning of, them in any way. Right, right, right. But, uh, but you are, uh, you, your route to, to this job is entirely different than the route that people traditionally think of as uh, the path to being the leader of a labor union. In a sense, it reflects the changing nature of, of labor and the changing nature of the country. But talk a little bit about who you are and, and how you got to this point, how you grew up, and uh, what led you to join the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I got to this point because I believe and have experienced in the power of a group. Um, I was born as the uh, third oldest in a family of 10 children. In Detroit. In Detroit. And I think the things that have influenced me the most are my family, uh, my faith as a Catholic, and uh, the union. Uh, Those three things have given me the experience of, as the oldest sister, having to round up my nine brothers and sisters and get them to the bus stop on time. Um, fix lunches, make sure people had the right clothes. That was my job every morning. And so I figured out uh, how to get other people to help me and how much more fun it could be that we could accomplish things uh, together. But but your parents, just to be clear, they were not in the labor no, movement. No, not at all. Your father was a salesman, is that yes, right? Yes, he was a door-to-door salesman. And what did your mom do? My mom was a teacher in the public schools in Detroit initially, and then when she had her third child, 
she would just substitute teach from child three to child 10. And then she went back to teaching full time once my youngest brother got into kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And she was, but was she in a teacher's union? She was not. It was before the teacher's union in Detroit. And then she was in Catholic schools that were non-union in the Northwest suburbs. And you went, you went to college in in Michigan? At Michigan State, yeah. And not in uh, what? Would tell, what was your focus? There was like urban planning. It was urban planning. I really wanted to. My big dream was to revitalize the city of Detroit. Um, still I, a worthy dream. <laughs> yes, it's still a worthy dream. And when by the I, way, you, you go to, just to interrupt for a second. Um, what things seem to be happening in Detroit? Yeah. You get back there at all? Oh yeah, I was in the Turkey Trot at Thanksgiving down Woodward Avenue. Oh, is that right? I was. Yeah, with and my six look, brothers and sisters. Things, oh wow. You must have taken we went, up a whole lane. We did. We did. How uh, uh, And how did the city look to you? You know, it's coming back. Uh, it, there's, it's still, like I would say, the center city sees possibilities. It's unclear to me that the neighborhoods, like um, I went to church with my mom at Jesu at Six and Woodward, where um, I was first born and where she grew up. That neighborhood is not in any better shape um, mm-hmm. at the moment. And so I think the struggle for that city is how everybody's a part of the recovery, uh, mm-hmm. just like it is for the entire nation at it, this moment. It, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so you grew up there. You went to Michigan State. Yeah, and I was in. Um, I was doing a lot of le- lesbian women's organizing as a student. Mm-hmm. And the most influential women were from the United Auto uh, we Workers. We should stop there because we shouldn't let that just go by because that's one other way in which you're not I'm a little different, the yeah. typical labor leader. Right. So you knew from you were active from an early age on the uh, you you knew who you were and you yeah. acted on it. Yeah, and I was part of the campus organizing that was happening in the mid 70s around the women's movement and I was a part of sort of the lesbian influence of the women's movement at least in East Lansing Michigan at the time I didn't have the kind of global perspective that I have now about what was happening in let, that let movement. me let me just push a little further on this um, you came you said from this large Catholic family correct um, so how uh, what what kinds of challenges did that pose to you in 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 coming being, out and yeah and uh, and being who you are? Yeah, I think what uh, what prevailed in my coming out in my family is that my parents um, acted out of love, and because they loved me, uh, they were uh, uncomfortable for my safety. I think. Uh, because there were beatings of gay people that were pretty well publicized at that time um, in the early to mid-70s, late-70s in Michigan. And so their biggest concern for me was my safety. But they were completely accepting of me. And I was very fortunate in that regard, I think. My friends, I had a lot, I lost a lot of friends when I came out. Because I was uh, 17. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my high school and then early college friends, because of our religious practice, um, thought there was something wrong with me. Did you go to Catholic school? I did. Mm-hmm. I did. Grade school and high school. And I went to one year of public school in Michigan when the Catholic schools were too full. And you're, so you were in high school when, when, when you came out? Yeah. And how did the school itself respond to that? 
Um, I was in an all-girls Catholic school, and I think the women religious there were, again, um, very unusual for the time in the sense that I was not isolated, I was not bullied, the kinds of things that you hear that Mm -hmm. happen to kids in school. Um, But mostly it was a a good Irish Catholic response, which was not to talk about it, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so... I didn't either feel accepted or welcomed. I felt uh, tolerated. Is what the about way by the church it. itself? You, you're still a practicing I am. Catholic. I am. Do you feel accepted by the church? Not at all. Um, I think the institutional church has a long way to go. I'd say my parish in San Francisco and my parish in D.C. are incredibly open and welcoming. And I think that what Pope Francis has done to talk about a year of mercy, dealing with uh, not judging, like who am I to judge, um, has opened up a completely new conversation. My mother is now participating in an LGBT exploration in our parish in northwest suburbs of Detroit Mm. that would have never happened without Pope Francis. Uh So it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, And uh, we should get back... We'll get back to him okay. because he, he relates to other issues. Yes, that he you does. Work on he does as well. Um, so we, when last we left you, you yes, were a student at Michigan, Michigan State, State in urban planning. And so, how did you move from there to the labor movement? Well, I was a work study student all through college, and every one of those work study experiences introduced me to unions. I would say. I was a student worker in as a janitor in the student union. The rest of the full-time workers were union members. Some of the best experiences I had, um, I was taken under the wing of the union stewards to kind of show me the ropes. And I experienced in that, those early work experiences, uh, uh, the power, again, of people being in an organization and being able to think about each other's in ways that supervisors could never imagine how workers look out for each other and help each other. You know, I fell asleep in a closet because uh, I was, you know, studying too much. I ended up having monoleucleosis. The union steward helped me out. Mm. Um, then UAW women... I could have advised you on that. Oh, you could have? I would have told you not to study so hard. That's <laughs> right. that's how I got through. Right, right. Um, and then UAW women were incredibly influential in the women's organizing that was happening on campus. Mm-hmm. And they were very um, – they, they were community members that had, like, student community organizing happening in East Lansing around reproductive health hazards on the assembly line, hmm. which I got really – uh, interested in because I was part of the MPERG organization in East Lansing, and my student work study assignment that year was to help lobby on health hazards in the state legislature. And so I got to meet these women, and I was just so kind of mesmerized by how they thought about action. And it was so resonant with being the oldest sister, organizing people in a group that I, I got really attracted to the idea of working with them full-time. And so I did a second major in labor-industrial relations in my junior and senior year, and I tried to go work for the UAW just because of these the experience of seeing how these women move together. And what, ha- what, what happened there? They, Could have changed the course of history. <laughs> right. 
Well, the UAW did not hire from outside the ranks at the time. This goes to your first point about SEIU was a way in for somebody like me Mm -hmm. that didn't grow up in a union family, didn't grow up through union jobs. And the president of SEIU at the time wanted young people out of colleges to come into SEIU to help infuse the organization. And the UAW said that if I went and got a PhD in economics, I could be in their research department. So instead, Olga Madar, who was a founding member of the Coalition of Labor Union Women, saw me wandering around Solidarity House and went up to me and said, what can I do to help you? Because as a woman trade union leader, she had a commitment to younger women coming into the movement. And she connected me to Joyce Miller in New York, who was part of the American Clothing Textile Workers Union. And then she connected me to June McMahon at the SEIU. And that's how, that's how I didn't know what SEIU was when I was uh, 20. And you went to California? Well, at first, I, um, I was interviewed in D.C., and they gave me a math test, and I had a test to write a speech for— A math test? A math test, because I was going to be a researcher. I see. And I failed the math test. And then I was supposed to look at a newspaper article about the corruption— I, I don't even understand what the math test has to do. Average, like, uh, averaging wages. If you're going I to be see. an assistant at a bargaining table, can you do uh, average wage? Can you figure out um, percentage increases? Can you do the formulas on pensions? That was the— I guess you have some folks to help you with that. Now, I do. Right? Yes. I have many folks to help me with it yes. now since I failed then. This is like total serendipity working. I think of it, frankly, as the hand of God, mm-hmm. you know, because I failed the math test. I passed the speech test. They liked what I said about the corrupt union official that I was supposed to write a speech for because he had been smeared in the newspaper for his handling of finances. And um, I was walking out having... I thought lost the job, and a friend of what did you write for the corrupt union official? I, Just in case there are corrupt union officials <laughs> listening, there may be some tips for um, you. I I um, I had him own what he had done, and um, ask for forgiveness of the members, and then commit to um, uh, com- uh, correct what he had done. Like to my pay- goodness, you could have been a political. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, I had no idea at the time. It was pure instinct, and I thought for sure it must be not the right thing to do in a labor movement, you know, at the— But they appreciated it. Yes, and then this woman saw me leaving. She knew me from the high school I went to. She ran down to the guy that was saying no to me and said, I know this woman. I know her family. I think you should give her a chance. That's how I got the freaking job. I mean, it was—and then they sent me to California. The, it was a training program that was modeled after the Peace Corps, where you earned $12,000 a year, and they trained you for a year, and then they, you agreed to go anywhere in the country for three years to pay the union back for the investment in you. It's, uh, and, and California was an interesting place oh my gosh. to be uh, because of the influx of, of, of immigrants, yes. new Americans, and so on, yes. who were very prevalent in the service industry. Yes. So what, what did you learn through those experiences? Well, 
there was an intention to introduce you to every part of the membership. So I worked with janitors organizing in the suburbs because they were part-time in the suburbs, full-time in the city. We were trying to raise the wages. I uh, worked with Kaiser Permanente because Kaiser had agreed to do childcare on site. And there was a committee that I staffed of women that were figuring out how to do 24-7 childcare for healthcare workers. Um, I did wage surveys. I actually figured out my math problem when I wasn't <laughs> under the gun. And uh, for all the public workers in California and compared city, county, state wages, um, I learned from this man that did the war labor board for our union after World War II, who was at the sort of end of his career and was an incredible gift to me because I was not welcomed. I was the, one of the first women hired in this job. They didn't really want women. All the people ahead of me had been white men primarily. There were a few African-American men. And what about as a lesbian woman? Um, you know, in San Francisco oh, in, I see, yeah. in, in 1980, that was not uh, that wasn't an issue as long as I was performing. When I went to L.A., actually, six months in San Francisco, six months in L.A., when I went to L.A., it was a bigger problem, especially with the members, you know. And I had a lot of experiences where I learned fundamentally something that has guided me as president, that the power of the union is that whatever discrimination we may feel towards each other in our neighborhoods or our schools, when it comes to the workplace, people are willing to have each other's back in a way that wasn't my lived experience in the broader society. And that if you use the building of worker organization and union correctly, you can really hardwire into any person from any walk of life um, and openness to embrace what you have never grown up with. You know, I, I remember I, well, I was a reporter in 1984, um, and I think it was then that I ran into Jesse Jackson in, a, mm. in campaigning in Iowa, an all-white state, and I remember a line he had, which was, we're, we're all the same color when the plant lights go out. Mm. Uh, which was exactly. a po- powerful line. Exactly, exactly. Powerful line. Exactly. So, what? It, what? Let's let's jump forward to today. Um, where where do you see the labor movement? You know, you lead a union that's actually growing, almost two million members, and growing because the service sector has uh, has grown. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the labor movement is not growing. Right. Uh, and labor's standing public standing has suffered. Uh, assess the state of the labor movement today. I would say that the um, in my lifetime, the labor movement has, ne- has not been at a more critical point. Um, I feel like we are at a make-or-break moment of whether uh, workers' ability uh, to come together and improve their lives is at question um, because of the sort of systematic attack on organization and because of the labor movement's unwillingness to respond to what's coming at us and because of a politics in the country that doesn't um, see how essential um, worker organization is to our economic and democratic life, that there's all these forces um, happening that – 
has makes us I think we have to stop looking at the way things were. I call it the rearview mirror and think forward to um the next generation and what decisions are we going to make that are going to create the next form of workers collective power in our economy and democracy. Why do you think it is that um the standing of labor among Americans has fallen uh and you know, you were in a time where inequality, mm. the uh, the flattening of wages, and so on, are front and center issues for most Americans, and yet they don't think of labor necessarily as the uh, or collective bargaining as the as a as part the of the answer. solution. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Why? I think because we um, in seventy four. We kind of peaked in 1974 in, th- in setting wages and conditions for the majority of people that work for a living, you know, an hourly. And because we then kind of went into a crouch in thinking about how to protect our pensions and health care and started bargaining wage increases away to maintain our health care and pension benefits in the 60s and 70s and 80s, we ceased to be irrelevant to the majority of working people. We were no longer a catalyst for creating a better life for everybody. We became protecting, very protection of our own membership. And so the 35 million people that used to have collective organization is now down to 16 million. And by next summer, it's, we're going to lose another 2 million because of a Supreme Court case uh, for the public sector, where public sector workers' organizations will no longer be allowed to have union shops. Everybody will be a voluntary member. And I think that means that we'll, the, another chunk of the movement will be gone. And depending on the outcome of the U.S. presidential election and 18 governors' elections, we could see more right-to-work um, activity, which will weaken worker organization as well. So that's one set of facts. The other is... Let me, let me just stop you on the, the right-to-work uh, uh, element uh, of this discussion. Uh, that's clearly an agenda that um, that the, the right has pushed. Yes. And with some success. I mean, the state... You could never have imagined as a mm, young person in the state of, state Michigan, of Michigan that Michigan would be a right-to-work state. But the argument is that uh, people shouldn't um, shouldn't have uh, money deducted from their paycheck involuntarily. Right. And that has found some resonance with yes. people who actually, on the basis of their economic interests, should should not uh, feel that way. Why is that? Why, why do people not see the connection between um, what uh, unions have done and their own self-interest? I think because we're no longer raising wages for the entire country. And so in 74, when workers bargained their wages up, it changed the service and industrial economy for everybody. And now when workers' wages are raised in a unionized setting, it has no impact on non-union because our this, what you said, the stagnation of wages across the economy and growing income inequality and the shrinking of the labor movement means that what we're doing no longer matters. And we created this ethos of if you, uh, if I can't have a pension, why should you? As opposed to in the 70s when people said, how can I get a job 
that guarantees me a pension. Like, you've got it, I want it too. And I think that's the moment that we have we can respark. I think we have to acknowledge as a movement that we need to build a voluntary uh, organization of workers like the rest of the globe has. Um, and we found in our home care and child care units, because they were ordered by the court last summer to be open shop, that um, there's incredible resilience on the part of our home care and child care leaders who said no court decision is going to stand in the way of us joining together to fight for elders and the disabled, the people that we care about and that we serve, and for ourselves. And so for minimum wage poverty jobs that we've taken to $15 an hour jobs with health care, sick leave, pensions in some cases, in about 14 states of the country, those women, primarily women of color, are bound and determined to build a powerful voluntary organization. And I think that we're committed to making that happen across the public service sector as well. And it's why we've supported the fast food workers movement, because we believe that all workers across the service and care sector can join together and do for the U.S. economy what industrial workers did in the last century, when auto steel and rubber workers joined together and raised wages in that sector. It transformed the economy and created a middle class. I think we have the potential to do that again. I want to pursue that in a second, but uh, this is not an idea that necessarily would be, would be embraced by your brothers and sisters in the leadership of other unions. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. I think that because of the systematic attack, David, that um, – Many of my brothers and sisters in the labor movement are waking up to the fact that whether or not we want to advocate, it's happening to us. And so I'm trying to make the case across the American labor movement, let's embrace the idea that um, creating an organization where people can choose to join and change not only their economic life, but the economic life of everybody in this country is something that I think we have found with fast food, home care, child care, adjunct professors, airport workers. There's huge interest uh, in people being able to join something where they believe they can make a difference in their life, but also have a fighting chance for their kids. So in your, uh, when you make that presentation, people who support right-to-work laws would say, well, we're on the same page with you because <laughs> we, we don't think... We think people should voluntarily associate with these organizations. We don't think that they should be compelled to. Yeah, and those same people are suppressing 5 million votes through the worst voter uh, rights, you know, and uh, going after Planned Parenthood funding and everything that we hold dear um, is being eviscerated by the people that are saying that in the right-to-work movement. So I wouldn't say that... It may be that the means that we have are the same, but our ends are totally do you different. Th- how much do you think the, uh, the anti-union movement uh, is motivated by trying to reduce the influence of unions in our politics? Um, that's what we hear when we listen to the CPAC. You know, Grover Norquist last year at a CPAC conference said, did a presentation with Scott Walker as an example in saying, here's the cookbook for how to eliminate the influence of unions in the politics of every state. 
And, um, you know, they had Scott Walker do his presentation about first I did this, then I did this, and then he passed right to work. And, you know, we've lost, just in the last four years, probably 300,000 union members in the state of Wisconsin alone. And it's had a political impact. Yes, exactly. So I don't know if it's motivated that way, David, because I have to tell you, my thought is that it's as much motivated by a corporate agenda that (laughs) seeks to not have government act as a leveler of uh, being able to level the playing field between the influence of the wealthy and corporations in the democracy. And so it could, um, but again, I think that's more of a means than it is that the actual end here is, you know, how do we how do we act out of a value that we're all in this together, that we are our brothers and sisters keeper, and that we want a nation where um, people have a shot at being able to work hard and have their kids do better. And those are fundamental things that are threatened by the agenda that uh, is being driven by the same people on right to work, climate change, women's health, LGBT equality, immigrant justice and the rest. How do you persuade people that there, there is an image, I think it's fair to say, of union leadership as a, a, brand, a brand of politician in their own right? Mm. They have their own constituency and they, are, you know, they do what they need to do to sustain themselves in office. I think that's partly the image that some members of, of some union members have. Uh, of their leadership, what, what do you do to combat that? Well, I think we do we do it by uh, acting as movement leaders. I'd I'd say more and more of the American labor movement, I think, um, see themselves. I I think of myself both as a leader of SEIU, the institution, but also a piece of a movement leadership where I have to use the institution to fuel the Black Lives Matter movement, the immigrant justice movement, because our members are the people and leaders in their communities that are helping to fuel each of those movements. And so I think we combat the image by showing up in each other's fights and having our members uh, tell these incredibly compelling stories about their lives and how their organization has transformed their ability to participate in the democracy, and uh, to make a change in the economic well-being of their communities. So let's go to the fast food workers. You, you've been uh, uh, very visible organizing outside of fast food restaurants. McDonald's has been a particular uh, target. Uh, but so far, um, there hasn't been a lot of movement uh, on this. What, and, and you've been at it, what, about a year now? Uh, we, I think the fast food workers in Brooklyn struck in uh, November of 2012 after the president's oh, re-election. Pardon. So uh, where, where is this going and, and what's your level of confidence that uh, something's going to happen here? Well, we feel really proud of the progress we've made in changing the debate on wages in this country. We think that the courage and fearlessness of people – Uh, like Terrence Wise in Kansas City, who is a 36-year-old second-generation fast food worker. His mom is a fast food worker in North Carolina. He earns $9 an hour after 19 years of work. His fiance is a home care worker. Um, You know, he does two and three jobs to try and do right by his three kids uh, and has been 
transformed by the opportunity to be a leader in an organization where the fullness of his potential is being realized. And that's happening for tens of thousands of fast food workers across the country. And that's valuable, but so is money in your paycheck. Well, so what 11 is going to translate mil- into that? Well, 11 million people have gotten minimum wage increases since this campaign started. And it hasn't been just this campaign. I think the president in the State of the Union leaned in on minimum wage. I think governors and mayors like the city of Seattle had a political debate. Uh, we f- uh, financed an initiative at SeaTac on a $15 minimum wage as a way to kind of kickstart what was seen as this bold dream and now has become a legitimate demand and a new benchmark. And so um, we think those things have been incredibly valuable and have in few, it has changed the bargaining in our union. Like we now go to home care and nursing home bargaining tables and the employers put their hands up and say, we know there's going to be a $15 minimum demand and we want you to know that we think we got to get there, but we're not going to be able to do it in one bump. It's going to have to be over the... That's a huge sea change, David, from bargaining three years ago when people were getting zero. And this, this by the way, this sector, home care, uh, uh, health care, um, you know, health care workers generally, given the aging of the population is going to be a, a, a the fastest growing job in the con- in the economy. There's mm-hmm. two million today, and by 2025 there's going to be another million, and by 2030 I think they project yet another million because of the escalation of aging and because people want to be able to live independently. You know, yeah. on this shift, and frankly, the Affordable Care Act has created more choices. Uh, for the entire population. Uh, and so, yeah, we think there's incredible potential uh, across the service and care sector to build new unions. The uh, My uh, father-in-law just passed away this uh, past year. He was 99 years old. Mm. And in his final years, he had a really wonderful mm. uh, guy who worked uh, came through a healthcare agency who worked with him they be, they they bonded in a way that was really touching yeah. but uh he uh the guy who worked for him uh was making through the agency 10 dollars an hour and um and he was providing life sustaining right. kind of attention right uh and we tried to help uh, him along the way but uh there there are Millions of people like him. Right. And these are jobs, as you know, that have never been valued in our economy. They were jobs that were excluded from Social Security. They're excluded from fair labor standards. President Obama was the first person to recognize overtime for these workers who often work many volunteer hours because of that bond. And I think because it's considered women's work and care work, it's never been valued in the way that auto jobs. Well, if you were. have a fam- if you're a member of a family and you have a loved oh. one who needs care, you value it exactly. Um, the Affordable Care Act. You mentioned it. There are a lot of stresses and strains on the Affordable Care Act right now. Um, you know, I was in the White House when we fought very hard uh, to pass it. I'm proud of that, um, but it's also uh, dealt with a lot of rear guard actions to yes. try. And undo it. What, what What is your view of the Affordable Care Act, and what's the future for it? Well, we celebrate it every day, and we're incredibly grateful for the president's steadfast leadership on pushing against enormous headwinds, not just to pass the thing, but to defend it every, it seems like every six months, we're having to redefend it in front of the Supreme Court or this crazy Congress or something. And our members were delighted to go into Latino communities, especially, to get through the fear 
of signing up. Uh, and we're incredibly proud to have been part of the ground troops that helped get the 12 million additional people covered in this country. We're thrilled that 100 million people can go to bed at night not worrying about pre-existing conditions and the threat of medical bankruptcy. It's I find us as a uh, reminder of what's good about it. We agree there's pieces that need to be fixed and strengthened, but um, you're going to have to uh, wring this out of our cold, dead hands before we're ever going to allow this country to go back from where we're at. You know, the problem with the Affordable Care Act, just as a uh, – I mean, there are, there are real problems, the, the high deductibility, yes. uh, the, the, the absence of um, or the relative – lack of young, healthy people joining, which yeah. is uh, on which the economics of it uh, rests. And if there are people listening who haven't, um, you know, you should look into that. Uh, uh, but you mentioned some benefits that accrue to every American who has insurance as well as people who don't have insurance. But it's a little like labor. You know, you win these, you win these guarantees and these securities, but people don't associate them with you sometimes they don't even know they have them until they experience a crisis. Uh, a crisis, mm-hmm. and so very, the program isn't credited uh, with uh, affording people those kinds of guarantees, even though they're there. It's it's right. a it's a difficult problem. Let's talk a little bit about politics in the time we have left. Your union has endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. I want to ask you about that uh, because. Um, as you know, Bernie Sanders has has, has run, run a very strong progressive campaign, uh, and you would think that there were segments of your union that would respond very strongly to that. But you went for an early endorsement of uh, of Hillary. Um, explain why. You know, um, she met with our home care and child care leaders and um, did a roundtable where those leaders came back to our executive board and talked about how they felt she really got uh, the value of home care and child care work in a way that they had not experienced from any other candidate. And so that's one of the biggest reasons I would say we went for it. The second is we have a union that's deeply committed to citizenship for every undocumented uh, worker and person in this country, and we feel like she was stand up in every way on uh, immigration. And we, I do acknowledge that even today, David, as we sit here having endorsed, there are incredibly um, electrified volunteer members of ours that are working for the Sanders campaign. Uh, but I believe that over the course of the next four months, we are going to unite our union on the 15 and a union voter agenda that we have that includes home care and child care jobs being living wage jobs, Black Lives Matter getting acknowledged by the presidential campaigns and citizenship for immigrants, which is kind of the core agenda that we're signing up voters on everywhere in the country and throughout our membership, while at the same time working really hard at all the early caucus states for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that's what I want to ask you about that, because Iowa looms February 1st. Yes. Uh, and it's a very big test. If, I, I, I'm of the opinion that if Hillary wins Iowa, that she, she'll she be the nominee of the party. I think she probably is the nominee anyway, and I say that as someone who has deep respect for uh, for Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Sanders yeah. our first podcast guest. Oh, uh, great! But uh, but my uh, but but what what are you going to be doing in 
these early states in Iowa, in New Hampshire, to secure victory? How, mit, how much in terms of resources, manpower, and so on, to help, uh, help her prevail in those contests? Well, immediately after our endorsement in Iowa, we did a push-button poll with every Iowa member to identify early um, support quickly. And then we moved a team into Iowa that's working with our local leader who's part of a coordinated labor campaign. Uh, We're not running a separate operation from the rest of labor, but we're going deep in our membership. And then we did, our biggest concentration of members is in Iowa City with the University of Iowa Medical Center. And so we did a special registered nurse event with uh, Hillary Clinton there to help bring excitement. And then we have volunteer groups moving in from Michigan, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Missouri in the next two weeks. The, some of the buses have left Minnesota today. I'm going to be there this coming weekend um, to do volunteer recruitment that's targeted on caucus turnout and GOTV that's been part of an operation that we folded into that was happening by the Clinton campaign. Before How important do you think it is to end the process quickly? You know, I actually think that the um, – the process that Senator Sanders has made a huge contribution to the debate and that um, it's uh, the process has actually helped sharpen the contrast between the values that Democrats stand for in this country and the the very dangerous uh, debate that's happening in the Republican Party. And so I have to tell you, I'm not as concerned about the timing of our process as I am about um, how did push back against what's happening on the Republican side of this uh, debate? I am deeply concerned about um, what's stirring even in our membership, David, uh, where our members are responding to Trump's uh, message and hate and divisiveness. And so the other piece of what we're doing right now is we're going into hyperdrive, especially in the pockets of our membership that have a lot of Muslim leaders. Um, to stand against what's being said. Um, because he, as you can see, and I've heard you comment on, has touched this vein. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're very concerned. And we feel like, again, Hillary Clinton and Senator Sanders have been really good about objecting quickly and using their bully pulpits to help um, dial this down. But this ad that uh, Trump released today... yes is, uh, you know, horrific in my mind and reminds me of Pete Wilson in California on Proposition 226. Pete Wilson won. I know. I know. That's why I'm, I'm, I think this is a very dangerous political moment in our country. Could you see Donald Trump actually winning? Yeah, I could. I could. And, and why do you think he appeals to your members or some of your members? Um... I think he's he's touching this vein of the terrible anxiety that working class people feel about their current status, but more importantly, how terrified they are for their kids not being able to do as bad as well as they have, never mind doing better. You know, and uh-huh. so that broken sense of the future, um, and and not. That emotion having an easier appeal to fear than to what's possible. Um, 
is what we found is why is it, it's so – we're doing one-on-ones with every one of our members right now in this period because 64% of our public members identify as conservative and are much more interested in the Republican debate than the Democratic debate at this moment. Isn't part of the problem, Mary Kay, that uh, wages have basically been flat? Median wages have been flat for, I think, 90% of Americans haven't had a, a raise uh, on, in constant dollars in 22 years. We've got the same median wage as we had in 1999. Uh, and uh, politicians every four years say, we're going to do something about mm-hmm. that, and nothing happens. Uh, doesn't that uh, sort of ripen the uh, field for uh, someone like Trump to come along and say, the politicians have failed you. I'll take care of it. Yes, I, I agree that that's the the sort of petri dish that allows that fear to get stoked. And I think the contrast that we're trying to create is somebody like Governor Cuomo, of all people, was willing to step out and order a wage board that hadn't been used since 1955 in New York, and that caused a six dollar wage increase over the next five years for 200 thousand fast food workers in New York. And frankly, David, that's what we're saying to fast food workers around the country. Your vote does matter because you can elect a politician that could actually take action that would make difference on your wages, either through minimum wage or demanding wage boards. So we are trying to make this direct link as the antidote to the fear that's being stoked by somebody. You know, you look at the map of... uh of Democratic appeal, Republican appeal, of Trump's appeal, and so on. And it, it has a very regional skew. You know, mm-hmm. Democrats have been become a bi-coastal party, very strong on the East Coast and the West Coast. In the middle of the country, not so much. Mm-hmm. In the South, very difficult. Do you have those same difficulties as a leader uh, of a national union? Do you find those same regional differences as you travel around and sound out the views of your members? I um hmm that's a good question. I would say that our white conservative membership that is that we hear are responding to the Trump appeal are more concentrated in the Midwest and the South. But this is why they want to tear down worker organizations. When people are in an organization that's providing different information and is creating circles of conversation where people trust each other, we can be the, the antidote uh, in getting people to think about how Trump isn't saying anything that's responding to the basic problem. Trump actually said wages are too high, taxes are too high, people need to work their way up into the I don't know if you heard what he said on the minimum wage. It was an outrage. So we're like pumping that into our membership because he's just not going to deal with the basic economic anxiety. And it's our job to help communicate that um, to those members. It's very effective. Haven't you, haven't you seen The Apprentice? <laughs> that, it always ends up gonna fire It always people. works out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like – it's just absurd. But well, that absurdity – I mean, But I think you've touched on the – the core of it, which is that, you know, in a country with stagnant wages and people who see their prospects diminishing and their children's prospects diminishing, uh, that is ripe territory for a guy like him to come along. I mean, we've seen it before in history. Um, So uh, last uh, last point, I think a good place to end is uh, where 10 
Ten years from now, do you see the American labor movement? Um, I see a vibrant, uh, growing 21st century organization of workers, millions more workers joining organizations to uh, raise their wages either directly with their employers or through a government that they are going to transform because more and more of those workers are going to decide to participate in politics because they're going to understand the direct connection that if they show up, they can demand government officials uh, acting on their behalf. And um, I think it's not going to look like today's labor movement. Um, And I think there's going to be a new part of the labor movement that deals with how do we have portable benefits for the growth of the independent contractor form of employment that's happening in the so-called gig or sharing economy that's happening. And there's lots of good little innovations happening, some of which we're part of, others of which we're just trying to help resource and finance. Um, I think leadership um, is really key. And the thing, Terrence Wise was this fast food worker that introduced Mm -hmm. President Obama at this Worker Voice Summit um, last, and several of the members of the cabinet that were sitting in front of me turned to me and said, wow, he's just incredible. He had such presence in telling the story and introducing the president. And I said to them, there are tens of thousands of Terrence Wises around. So I think the other thing is like unlocking the leadership that exists of people that are making magic happen in their lives while they're living in poverty but are taking the time to build new organization, I think is incredibly inspiring to me. And so uh, it's going to be a very – I think you're going to see another big hit to the American labor movement this year and how we respond to the hit and then how we do in this presidential election I think are the breakthrough moments for – the next surge in uh, workers forming organization like we did in the uh, 30s. I think we'll see another period like that. Well, now we have this recorded, so I'm going to have to have you back in 10 years. <laughs> okay, great. And hopefully, and hopefully many times we'll be looking between, back. We'll be looking between, back at it and thinking, we're, we're, shit, we're, can you believe how income inequality has <laughs> been reduced and one in five kids are not going to bed hungry and there isn't that disparity in education anymore? We're putting this recording in the time capsule. Okay, great. Fabulous. And we're going to open it up. But, uh, <laughs> but I will say this. When you look at the face of the future of the labor movement, I think we're looking at yours. And it's a... It's great to have you here. Great. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.